But we're glad that you're here uh, this morning in our systematic theology class. And if you're listening or watching online, we welcome you as well. I hear many great stories of people uh, tuning us in, uh, not only this morning, but they'll pick it up and watch it uh, later in the week. So this is our next to last class for the fall term, the fall semester. And uh, next week we'll begin bright and early, and then that will finish out our fall semester, and then we'll pick back up uh, the spring semester, which will be January the 9th, and then we'll go another uh, 10 weeks. As I was thinking, it's maybe last night or early this morning, the two have kind of become one uh, today. I was thinking about just, you know, you know, I think what precipitated this was something I read in Grudem's uh, forward in the intro to his book. And um, it's either in this one or the... Um, no, this is it. He said, this book is dedicated to eight people whom God sovereignly brought into my life. And he mentions his parents, uh, his pastor, and he mentions this pastor, he says, and Kenneth Ham. I don't think it's the same Ken Ham that we had here Sunday. I, I'm quite sure it's not. A Baptist pastor who awakened in me a love for systematic theology by teaching a class on Christian doctrine when I was 13 years old. Wow. So this pastor taught a systematic theology class in his church, and this young 13-year-old sitting out there was Wayne Grudem, and uh, boy, God used him greatly. So we may have some Grudems or Grudemesses in the, uh, in the class today. You know, we do have teenagers, we have students, which is really, uh, really cool. I know of a few, let's see, Eileen Cromer over here, and Hannah, I bless you. Who else is teens in here? Is that Villarreal? Well, hey, man, how many other teenagers we got in the house? All right, that's, a, that's great. We've got a great age group here, younger and older. And so here's the other thought I had. I wonder from teaching this class and you guys being so disciplined to come, I wonder how God is going to use this in your life. Because I don't think it's by an accident. Uh, Y'all are saying, I don't even know accident I'm here, man. It took me an effort to get here, and I'm, I'm with you. But I don't think it's an accident because I believe God will take this this corpus of knowledge, this body of knowledge, and he'll use it in our minds, but also I wonder who God's going to raise up to be future Bible life teachers from this class, uh, future apologists who will be able to better give a defense for their faith. Um, who knows, maybe one day you'll teach, teach this class or one like it because, you know, somebody told me one time, you know, I, you know as a layperson, they know far more doctrine and theology than what they give themselves credit for. I mean, think about it. You know, if you have sat through biblical teaching for 50 years, and just by osmosis alone, you will have absorbed, you know, knowledge. And so I think the devil intimidates us a lot because we think, well, we don't have a degree in Bible, or we don't know that. Listen, guys, this class, if you make it through 20 weeks, it will be like a systematic theology class at seminary, Minus one thing. What is that one thing? Amen. <laughs> Test and grades, all that, all that fun stuff. So you're auditing the class. Okay, so we're on the section of um, demons and Satan and angels, and we're wrapping this part up. We're under uh, letter C, the activity of Satan and demons. And last time I mentioned two things. Satan is the originator of sin and the murderer from the beginning, as Jesus said in John 8, 44. 
Then number two, demons oppose every work of God. Can I get an amen from that? He opposes. He puts himself in full battle array in opposition to anything that would honor God, bring people to save in faith in Christ. So if you feel debilitated, if you feel difficulty, if you feel like there's this demonic pressure against you because you're trying to study God's Word or you're trying to lead your neighbor to Christ, then please don't be surprised by it because he specializes in this opposition. And then number three is where we started, uh, where we stopped last time. It says, Satan and demons are limited by God. I love that. He, he is not omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. Neither are his little minions, the demons. They are limited and restricted by God. And we see this in Job chapters uh, 1 and 2. So let's stop and just pray and ask the Lord to, to be with us this morning. Father, we love you so much and we thank you for the privilege of studying your word, studying the classic doctrines of the Orthodox Christian faith. Thank you, Lord, that even though this morning, this is a difficult subject, Lord, because we don't like to give him much credit, uh, the enemy, but we do need to know who he is and how he operates. And Father, if we know one thing, we know it's how much he despises you and hates you and one of the ways he likes to uh, attack you is by attacking us. And so we thank you, God, that you are uh, unshakable and that you are all-powerful, and we're asking that you would make us that way, God. Make us so that we have power and stability and that we would do as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So, Holy Spirit of God, we love you, bless, protect us, speak to us uh, through, the, through the teaching of your word. Use me, Lord, as your messenger, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Job 1 and 2, that heavenly counsel there with the, uh, you know, the enemy appears with, among the sons of God, which I believe are angelic beings, and they have this, and people get a little bent out of shape with that. Well, how did Satan have access to, to God? Well, God allowed it. That's the only way I can explain it because it says there they are in this uh, heavenly council, uh, if, if you will. And God told Satan, clearly you can do everything you want to do to Job, but you can't what? Anybody? You can't kill him. You can't take his life. And he did. I mean, he did just about everything short of uh, taking Job's life. We have power through Christ to resist the devil. I think about that verse in James, James chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Nowhere in Scripture, this ought to encourage you today, nowhere in Scripture do we read that Satan or his demons have unlimited power. And that's important because they don't have unlimited <clears throat> power. Only God has <clears throat> unmitigated, unlimited Power. I mean, God is omnipotent and the devil <clears throat> is not. Some of you are looking at me like, my brother, he's pretty strong. <laughs> Amen. I know he's strong. But he is, he is operating from a place of defeat, and you and I are operating from a place of victory. I didn't know I was going to say that this morning. That was worth getting up for early, early, early. Some people say, well, we've got to remember that. We are operating from Calvary and the empty tomb and Pentecost, and we are operating as God's children, as somebody who's eventually... Ultimately, we're going to win, and the enemy knows he's just the opposite. He knows eventually and ultimately he is going to lose because that's what God's Word teaches us in Revelation 20 and 21. Okay, number four, Satan has always opposed, especially always opposed God's work of redemption. We see this <clears throat> clearly in Scripture. For example, in Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17, 
You see the, the false gods. This is a very revealing text. If we'll pull this one up out of Deuteronomy 32, 16, 17. They provoked God to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked Him to anger. Now here it is. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. Now what did it just say they were... What's the context here? False gods. And so these false gods are called what in Scripture? Help me. Demons. They're sacrificing to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals. <clears throat> Flip the screen one more time. I think, is that it? That your fathers uh, did not fear. I thought that was very interesting because Scripture calls out these false deities, these false gods. You know, in other places it says they're just the work of men's hands. They have eyes, they cannot see. They have ears, they cannot hear. They have mouths, they cannot speak. They are nothing but the work of men's hands, but they are empowered by Satan who, is, who specializes in, in deception. Okay? But we have power over that and over him. Matthew 4, 1 through 11 tells us, how Satan opposes the work of redemption. Do y'all remember this temptation narrative? Do you remember the one who was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights? It was Christ. It was Jesus. And um, at the end of that temptation narrative, it says the devil departed from him, but we should not read that to mean he departed from him forever, never to tempt Jesus again. No, I, I believe he tempted him constantly, and he was constantly in opposition to the earthly ministry of Christ. But the kingdom of God came in the ministry of Jesus. He cast out demons. He overcame uh, uh, demons. And <clears throat> Satan opposes the church today through false religions from without, through false teachings from within. Uh, he stands in direct battle array opposition against you and against me. Hang on now, listen to this. Especially, especially if we get on the playing field of evangelism and missions. So many Christians are, they, they don't do much battle with the devil. They, they, the demons, what is all that? I don't, I don't sense any of that. When's the last time you shared with somebody? When's the last time you went on a mission trip? Oh, my land. Every time somebody goes on a mission trip, they're like, oh, pastor, it's all breaking loose. I tell you, the car won't work. Man, this won't work. That won't work. Now, I'm not one of those that finds a demon behind every bad situation, but I'm telling you this. When you stand up and go on the battlefield to lead souls to Christ, look out. He will come against you in full battle array. If you don't believe that, talk to Mike Miracle here. Talk to Kyle over here. Talk to some of these guys who do missions all the time, and they will say, he's telling you the truth. You don't need to be intimidated. You don't need to be fearful, but you do need to be fully cognizant of the fact that when you especially want to take God seriously, take the Word of God to the nations, whew, it gets, it gets intense. The good news is we have power over them, as did the first disciples, the 70. Remember, they returned from their evangelistic mission with great joy, and they said, Lord, even, anybody? The demons that are subject to us in your name, Luke 10, 17. And Jesus was like, that's cool, that's good, but you ought to be more happy that your names are recorded <laughs> in the book of life. Satan will be active at the... Um, well, he'll be active in the church age, which is now. He'll be active at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Revelation 20 teaches us that one final onslaught against the people of God. And then finally, Revelation 20.10, guys, it is in the Bible. 
It's a wonderful verse. One day, Satan and all of his cohorts, all of his demons will be cast into the lake of fire. Catch this, catch this adjective. Forever. Forever. And our battle will be over. But until then, there's much to do, much work to do. So let's talk about Christians and demons for a minute. Christians and demons, some believe angels and demons, first of all, that they're not real, that it's just a figment of our spiritual imagination. And people, even who are Christians, minimize the presence of the demonic and say, well, it's really, that, that was more in the New Testament era, and we don't really deal with demons like that in, in our day and age. This is more psychological, this is more in the realm of, of the mental, the cognitive domain, and the psychiatry and the psychologist. This has very little to do with spirituality or with demons, and I could not disagree more. I believe they're very real, very alive, very active, and to deny their existence and influence is only to attribute to them one of their key activities, which is deception. Okay? Not all sin and evil come from demons, as Gruden points out. Some of it just erupts from our sinful hearts. I get that. We're not to find a demon behind every bush, and I get that. But we are to be aware of their presence and to know that they do seek to thwart us, especially if we desire to live for Christ in a fallen world and share the gospel. Can a follower of Christ be demon-possessed? Well, you get that question a lot, do you not? Can a follower of Christ be, be demon, demonically possessed? I don't think they can be possessed, but I certainly believe from personal experience that they can be uh, oppressed. You say, why can't a demon, uh, po- why, can't he, why can't he not possess a Christian? Well, the Christian's already possessed. Somebody help me. Well, the Holy Spirit, okay? But we can be demonically oppressed or, or in, this, in this battle. I think that's a good distinction. So, it's imperative, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11, suit up, put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to withstand or stand against the wiles of the devil. Every morning, I get up, and just as I put my physical clothes on, I put my spiritual clothes on. I ask the Holy Spirit of God to fill me. I recognize I need to be filled, I repent of my sins, I request that He fills me, and I receive the power of the person, the infilling of the Holy Spirit of God so that I can go out and live for Christ. And then I get suited up. I I pray this prayer of the Ephesians 6, just like I did this morning. I prayed that God would equip me with the belt of truth, that I could um, remember that the belt holds everything together and that I should know the truth, and the truth shall what? It will set you free, the breastplate of righteousness, that I would be pure and holy in everything that I do and say. Because Scripture says, Be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And my feet be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Be ready in season, out of season. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense to everybody who asks me a reason for the hope that is within me with meekness and fear. Shield of faith. I put on the shield of faith every morning. Above all, Paul said, taking, and in my prayers, and even when I'm driving down the highway, people think I'm kind of crazy, but I'll lift up my arm like that. I'm literally driving and I go, put up the shield of faith whereby I can quench all the what? The fiery darts of, of the evil one. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. I raised my hands. The blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they loved their lives not unto the death. And I thank the Lord for the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Thy word have I hidden in my heart 
that I might not sin against thee. And then I thank you, Lord, for the helmet. Every morning I'm doing this. Every morning I'm putting on the helmet of salvation. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And then finally I put on the gift of prayer. It's interesting. When you read Ephesians 6, you read 17 and 18, he talks about praying and in and praying in the Spirit, and, and I begin to quote some of my favorite verses. I don't know if y'all noticed this or not. I put on the full armor, and then I put a corollary text in the Scripture that supports that armor. Uh, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the what? The peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, any of these things be praiseworthy, meditate on these things. You say, well, that takes a long time. I don't have time to get all that praying armory on me every morning. You ought to try it. Suit you. How many of y'all, let me ask you a question, would get up in the morning and walk out the door starch naked? No, 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 really. Some of you go, my my soul, Pastor, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. How many of us get up in the morning, walk out the door spiritually exposed and naked because we didn't take the time to just get, get clothed up? I really admonish you. I encourage you. I'm not practicing. I'm not preaching something I'm not practicing. I literally get up in the morning. The first things I do, first thing I do is get on my knees. I roll out of bed and I'm on my knees. My hair is about this tall. I'm not kidding you. It's amazing. I say, how can my hair be like this in the, in the night? And in the morning, I got a fro, man. I got a thing going on. I drop on my knees and I start praising the Trinitarian God. That's the first thing I do. And I start worshiping Him, praising Him. And from there, we get the coffee. And then I just sit and I just bask in the Word of God and feed my soul. I'm reading the book of Isaiah I'm reading the book of Proverbs. You say, well, you're not preaching through Isaiah, but aren't you, aren't, aren't you what you're supposed to do? I mean, you're just supposed to study the Scripture for a sermon. Here's what I've learned. If I'm the only time I'm reading the Bible is for something to, to study, then I'm not getting fed, you know? Some of you Bible life teachers, I hope you remember this. Your quiet time, your devotion is not what you're studying for Sunday, okay? That's a blessing. That's an overflow, all right? It's that time with the Lord in prayer and in reading His Word that you are getting, you're getting ready to face the day. You say, well, why would you do all that? What's the big deal? We have an enemy that hates us. He literally hates us. And everything we stand for in Christ, He is going to oppose us. And our only hope for defense, and our only hope to win, is to put on the full armor of God and allow God to fight those battles for us. Christians uh, and demons. Demonic activity is most recognizable. You know, it's interesting to me in the New Testament, we see story after story, 63 occurrences of demonic activity and oppression in Scripture. And one of the most graphic is the Gadarene demoniac in Mark chapter 5. Remember this guy? Who was just eaten up with demons. And after Jesus cast the demons out of him, he was in his right mind. Y'all remember that? Oh, thank you, brother. I appreciate that. (sighs) Thank you. You know, this is scriptural, Corey. Prophet, uh, drink of water. Receive a prophet's reward. 
This one guy left the church because I said that. Did y'all know that? Y'all heard that story? No, he did. He got mad and left. He said, you said you were a prophet. I said, what? <laughs> and he said, I don't, I don't think. I said, well, Scripture talks about the gift of prophecy, and a prophet is somebody not so much as foretelling the future, but foretelling the truth. And sometimes God gives me a hard message, and I have to share it and kind of as a prophet. He left the church, never to return, because he said, I, I called myself a prophet. Okay. Um, Imagine that, people leaving the church, getting upset about something and leaving the church. It's interesting talking about, uh, well, anyhow, no, I'm going to go there. <clears throat> Don't go over there. Don't go there. Um, so, he says, well, who are you? He says, we're a legion. There's a bunch of us, 6,000 or how many of us in this one man? And Jesus cast them out, threw them in the pigs. Pigs go over the, the cliff, and there's that man sitting in his right mind, you know. Why does the Bible have so much to say about demonic activity and we say hardly anything about it today? Just, I'm just asking. Richard Dawkins given a lecture, and I was watching some of it on uh, the, um, the Internet, YouTube. This guy's really vicious. He's extremely vicious against Christians. and He's a huge atheist, evolutionist. And he was at Oxford University, and the students, you know, the bright, erudite Oxford students were sitting. This is a big festive occasion. It's, I don't know if it's some kind of banquet or whatever, but Dawkins is the keynote speaker. And he said, let me, let me ask you students a question. If God is taking care of billions of galaxies in our universe, do you think that he cares at all who you sleep with? And they just started laughing. They just thought that was the greatest thing. I mean, literally, the laughter just roared from the hall there. And I just, it broke my heart. I just, I just put my head down and I thought, boy, the enemy is at work. Because if you can break a person down morally, you can break him down philosophically and spiritually, and that's what a lot of academies do. Yeah, if God is real and he's doing all that he's doing, do you think he cares about who you're sleeping with? And those kids, you know, they're just laughing. And in my quiet time I read this morning in Proverbs, in the context of sexual immorality, the Bible says God watches all of it and he weighs your actions. <laughs> so yes, he does. He's, he's minutely interested. Uh, but, of course, Dawkins is, a, is an atheist. He doesn't believe that. And again, sad, Satan surely at work using that man as an evangelist for his kingdom. 1 John 4, 4 Gives us good news, does it not? Some of y'all are going, man, I wish you'd share 1 John 4. 4. I'm, about to, I'm about to have a, a holy conniption fit here. Just, just read it. Okay, here it is. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is what? Greater than he that is in the world. He, by the way, little h, he, Satan, the enemy, the adversary, is no match for Christ, and he's no match for Christ within, within us. Our focus need not lie on the demonic realm and become infatuated with such evil as we have in our world today. Our, as followers of Christ, our focus should be on sharing the gospel, obeying the great commission, obeying the great commandment under the uh, leadership of the great commander. That should be our, our focus. Uh, we have authority from Jesus over evil spirits as Jesus teaches us in Luke 10, 19. Acts 16, 18, Paul told the demon to come out, evil spirit, come out of this possessed girl, and it did. Now, it might surprise you, <clears throat> pages 430 through 432, and I was reading it again this morning. 
this guy's interesting. He, um, you know, he's very bright, reformed theologian. But man, he gets this spirituality thing. He, you, you would think, well, if you're that smart and you're that academic, you don't really pay much attention to the demonic. He has pages in here. He instructs you as a Christian, here's how you deal with a demon. And here's what you do, here's what you say, here's what you don't say. And, and it's like three, three, four pages, 430 to 432. And I, I just bring that to your attention because, it, first of all, I just think that's fascinating. I think it's interesting that he would do that in a systematic a theology textbook, and I say it by way of applause. I, I appreciate it. I learn from it. Let me give you a couple other resources you may want to jot down. I don't think these are in your outline or in your notes or anything. Well, they're in my notes. There they are. Uh, Jerry Rankin's book, Spiritual Warfare, The Battle for God's Glory, is an excellent book on spiritual warfare, especially as it relates to missions. Uh, Jerry Rankin is the former president of the International Mission Board. It's called Spiritual Warfare, and the subtitle is The Battle for God's Glory. Beth Moore says every Christian should read this book. That's how important it is. Every Christian should read this book, and I agree. It's, it's outstanding. If you come across a guy by the name of Chuck Lawless, L-A-W-L-E-S-S, any of the things he writes on spiritual warfare, I would encourage you to read it, buy it. He did his Ph.D. dissertation in this realm of the spiritual warfare, and uh, he's, a, he's a great man of God. He used to be at um, South Southern Seminary, and now I think he works with the International Mission Board and kind of a hybrid position with one of our seminaries. Very bright fellow, but very humble, very sharp. His last name is Lawless, L-A-W-L-E-S-S. And you may have some good, good resources, some good books. I'll tell you, the best book ever written by far on spiritual warfare is the book of Ephesians. And if you get that down, especially chapter 6, you are well on your way to living victoriously over, over the enemy. So let me close this section, this lecture, with this quote, and I think you've heard it before, but let me, let me read it to you. I'll try to read it and not sing it. <clears throat> I like this song. It says, Build your kingdom here, let the darkness fear. Show your mighty hand and heal our streets and land. Set your church on fire. Win this nation back. Change the atmosphere and build your kingdom here, we pray. Unleash your kingdom's power. Unleash your kingdom's power, reaching the near and far. No force of hell can stop your beauty-changing hearts. Ooh, that's good. No force of hell can stop your beauty-changing hearts. You made us for much more than this. Awake the kingdom's seed in us. Fill us with the strength and the love of Christ. We are your church. We are the hope on earth. Mm, that's great theology. Who says some of these new, new songs don't have good theology? That is as about as good as it gets. It's called, it's called uh, the name of the band is Rend Collective Experiment. I have no idea what that means. Why would you name a band that? But I sure like their songs, at least that one. They kind of sound like that, um, was that Mumford? Sons, the, the kind of the beat to it, you know, but it's, uh, it's really good. It's really interesting. All right, that should wrap up angels and demons and Satan, and I'm glad to say that's the case. And now we're going to switch on over to lecture number seven.
which is the uh, doctrine of man, which, by the way, I have loved doing this study, reading on anthropology proper, if you will. Uh, the Greek word is anthropos. And so in a Christian setting, if we're studying the doctrine of man, we could say it's the study of anthropology in this context. Now I know anthropology in UT context would be far different than, than this. It would be more cultures and societies and so forth. But the Greek word is anthropos. That's where we get our word anthropology. So let's look at the doctrine of man. This is lecture number seven, and I know we won't finish it today. We'll probably finish it. Well, I know we'll finish it next week. We may get started on lecture eight. I'm not sure. Uh, my goal was to do all ten in ten weeks. That's just impossible. Because I, I, y'all ask way too many questions. You're, you're interrupting me constantly. I just can't. I just can't get it done. Y'all know I'm kidding. And if you're listening online, that was a joke, by the way. They're they're great. Half of them are asleep, but that's okay. They're, they're, they're here, and they're with us. No, they're, they're with us totally. And then we'll pick up January the 9th, and we'll just go, you know, as far as we can. If we get 16 done, then so be it. 14, whatever, whatever it is. But um, I hope to teach this again. Uh, I don't know when. I don't know if I'm going to do an early morning next year, 14 and 15, or may do a, an evening class. I, I'm, I'm not sure, but... Uh, I really want to teach this material again to hope, hopefully equip. And Ross, thank you for the encouragement. Ross continually encourages me by saying this is a great discipleship time because you're teaching us doctrine. You're teaching us what the Word of God says about these great doctrines of the faith. And so it does fit, though, doesn't it? Doesn't it fit one of our core values as a church to be a radiant church that shines inwardly and making much of Jesus, making much of the Word of God, equipping ourselves, being, always being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us with meekness and fear, as 1 Peter 3.15 says. Okay, so let's look at anthropology or the study of man. This is fascinating to me because we get to peer into the highest form, the highest act, if you will, of God's creative ability, and that would be humanity. It's the pinnacle of his creative work. For only man is said to be created in, help me, in the very image of God. That puts us in a separate class from all other created. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing on my word. Why is this so controversial? This is extremely controversial to people. Uh, there are people who are like, that's not true. That's not true. You cannot say that a human being is more important than that beautiful oak tree out there. You, you're just lost your mind. Or that chimpanzee floating around, flying around in the trees. He is, has as equal value as you and me because God created him. And, I, you know, I sat in on a class, so I didn't. I took a class at Texas Christian University, Horn Frogs. I had to do this because it's part of my Ph.D. requirement. So I went over and <laughs> I took this class. Oh, my word. And I thought, where am I? If I landed in Mars, because I, I came out of Fort Worth in the seminary, and they dropped me down in this secular class, and we took a retreat. We had to go on a spiritual retreat in this class. I thought, what in the world am I getting myself into? And, and my professor, he, I, we went out on this walk, and I'm just walking around talking to God, and this professor went up to this oak tree, and he went, he scared me. I went, I was like, dude, I was like, what? I didn't say anything. I was like, what is he doing? And then he looked up at the tree and he was caressing it and talking to this tree. He believed, I guess, this tree had a spirit or something, another to it. And that was just the beginning of weirdness. 
in, the, in that class. And uh, my friend who I talked into taking it with me, he, he wanted to kill me because he was like, how in the world did you talk me into it? I was like, well, we've got to have this, a class like this. And so there are people who would disagree and say, man, animate objects, inanimate objects, doesn't matter. I mean, it, it's all the same. It's God who created it. And I disagree with that because the Scripture says, and when He created man, He said it is very good because man is made in the very image of Almighty God. If we understand that, this will greatly encourage us. It will give us this sense of, thank you, Lord God. Thank you didn't make me a bunny rabbit or a tree. God, thank you that, that you made me just like you made me. I have the very fingerprint of God on my life in the very way that I look and the very way that I talk and the very way you've created me. God, you don't make mistakes. You don't make junk. And God, I praise you. This is an interesting doctrine. It's an encouraging doctrine as I, as I study it. So why was man created? Let's ask this question. Well, the Bible says, first of all, it, it refers to us as man. And some people have a problem with that. They say, well, I didn't respond. Just call us mankind or male and female because that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created Adam. Okay, God created Adam. That's the Hebrew word, Adam. Okay, and, and it will refer to, Scripture will refer to a man. But, uh, but it's also inclusive of male and, and female. So, uh, Grudem, interestingly enough, in this theological statement says he sees, even at the very beginning, the doctrine of the leadership of man in the man-woman relationship. For God did not create them male and female and call them female. <laughs> did, ever, did you catch that? He did not create them, says we'll call them female. He called, it, called them male. Absolutely the same in essence in ontology, but in God's creation, and we see this everywhere. We even see this in the Trinity, in the church, in the family, in the corporation. Equality, but somebody has to give leadership. And in God's economy, he, he creates and turns to the male gender to give leadership, especially in, in the home. We'll talk about this uh, later. Uh, a, God did not need to create us, but he did create us for his glory. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? God did not need to create us as though he were lonely or though he was lacking something because he's always been in eternal fellowship with himself or with the Trinitarian persons. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have always existed in fellowship, in relationship. So he wasn't lonely. It wasn't like he was lacking something and said, well, now I will create man. Nope, but he did it for his glory. He made us for His glory so we would worship Him. Isaiah 43, 7 says this. This is a great verse, by the way. It's not on your screen. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Whom I created for my glory. That's what he says. I created mankind for my glory. Uh, secondly, or B here, our purpose in life is to glorify Him. God is worthy, and we fulfill our reason for being as we worship Him. Think about the inherent and intrinsic value we have since God created us and we are going to live forever. We are made complete and we find our greatest joy as we live in fellowship with God, our Creator, and give Him glory. 
You know, the Westminster Catechism, the shorter verse in 1647, puts it like this. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And uh, John Piper puts a little twist on it when he says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. The Catechism says just simply enjoy Him forever. I think about uh, Psalm 1611, talking about joy and, and what God would have us to do. You will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, here's the controversy about it. And I've heard this, and maybe you have too. God is criticized for creating us purely for His worship and His glory. And they create God to be some egotistical cosmic being because the only reason He created us so that we would give Him glory and we would worship Him. And I'm laughing because Grudem says, So? <laughs> so? Is there any other being higher than God that should be glorified? And the answer is, No. So if God created us to be in fellowship with Him so that we would worship Him and honor Him, so be it. I mean, He's God. He can do what He wants to. And I get a little microcosmic hint of that in, in my family. I mean, we had children... Ashley and I did, and, and they honor us, and, and we honor them, but they give deference and respect to us, and that's a cool thing. I, I mean, I'm not going on no ego trips. Like, Man, I'm on an ego trip. I think I have kids. You know, I, I don't do that. I just, that's just what you do, you know, and, and they honor us, and that's the way we do God on a, in a much more exponentially supernatural way. We honor and worship the one who begot us. How about that? The one who gave us, gave us life. All right. Check this verse out before we go into point two. Revelation 4.11, talking about giving God glory as His creatures. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Here it is. For you created all things. And by your will, they exist and they were created. Um, that's why we, we worship Him. We worship Him because He gave us life. He, he created us. If you don't believe in God and you're an atheist, you believe you're the result of the primordial soup, then you'll worship nature, okay? You'll hug trees or you, you'll whatever. Everybody's going to worship somebody. You ever notice that? We are incurably religious, somebody said. We all will worship. We will worship the self. We will worship the nature. We will worship uh, other beings. Or we will worship the God who is rightfully to be worshipped because He's the one that owns us. He's the one that created us. Let's talk about the image of God. I love this part. The image of God. What does it mean to, be, to say we have been created in the very image of God. Well, here's the verse, Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Okay, so those are two key words there to say we are created in His image according to His likeness. It means we resemble God more than any other created thing. To be created in God's image means to be similar to God but not identical to God. We represent Him. God will always be above and separate from man. We will never become God as He is, just like the Son will never become that Father, though that Son is in the image or in the character of that Father, if you think about it on a human analogy. This is a really good statement. I, I, almost, I should have put this one on the screen. You may want to jot, jot this down. When it talks about the, us being created in the image of God, what does it mean? Well, here's what it means. It means intellectual ability. Okay? Intellectual ability. I'm sorry, but a monkey will never send a man to the moon. It 
just the way it is. All right? It's, you know, it, it, we have intellectual superiority. Anybody with IQ of plant life will recognize that. We are superior. Why? Because God made us superior as human beings. Number two, morality. Morality. Uh, we have a sense of oughtness, what is right and what is wrong, way far more than the animal kingdom, if you will. They have no ethical grid, no morality. Uh, I was thinking of a very controversial statement, but I'm not going to say that. Um, it's not controversial to me. It, just, it, it would be very controversial to some. Okay, I'll say it. You ever see two male bulls cohabitating? You ever see two female cats trying to make love? It's unnatural. God, even in the created animal world, it is absolutely incoherent, inconsistent. They never, they would never, I mean, if y'all could prove, show me some scientific research where two male dogs fall in love and actually try to cohabitate, I would love to read that. But now you're getting into something far deeper and darker. This is called sin. We, we have intellectual intelligence, and we also have morality that we can distort or that we can actually use for God's glory. I actually got that statement from Dr. Steve Gaines when he was preaching on it one time about homosexuality. He just called it the unnaturalness of it. And even the animal kingdom, animal world doesn't do it. Number three is eternality. Uh, the Bible says uh, we are created in the image of God. What does that mean? It means we have intellectual superiority. We have morality that should be superior. Sometimes it's not superior even to the animals. Okay? But we should. Morality. Number three, eternality. Only two things going to live forever, help me, the Word of God and the people of God. Or the Word of God and people. Because they're going to live forever somewhere. And number four, uh, dominion. We have dominion over the earth. We rule the earth as human beings. We just do. Um, that's just the way it is. That's the way God intended it to, to be. But in the fall of man, in Genesis 3, the image of God becomes distorted but not permanently marred or damaged. Let me say that again. In the fall of man, Genesis 3, the image of God becomes distorted but not completely lost. Okay? Because even after the fall, the Bible says in Genesis 9, because the fall happened in Genesis 3, Genesis 9, 6 says, for God made man in his image. So we still have that imprint, the image of God, upon our lives even after the fall. James 3, 9 says that man is made in the likeness of God. So that's in the Old and the New Testament. But the image of God in man is not what it was before the fall. It's not what it was created to be because we have lost some of our moral purity and our sinful nature does not always reflect God's holiness. We are still like Him and represent Him. However, we are less like Him than we were before the fall, Grudem says. And that's interesting. I like that. We are still like him, but we are less like him because of the fall. But in Jesus, mm, come on, but in Jesus, we see the fullness of our humanity, for he was not born in sin and he never sinned. So you see the fullness 
of what it means to be in the image of God. In fact, the scripture says that he is the very character of God in Hebrews. The Greek word character is where we get this English word, the, the character, characteristics. All right. In Christ, we are redeemed and we progress more in the image of God. It's interesting how much the Bible says about this. Paul wrote that we are renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator in Colossians 3.10. But let me read this one to you, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image. Okay, We're created in God's image. We're being transformed in His image. Glory unto glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so we are in process. God has created us. He has redeemed us back to himself. And we're daily, or at least we should be daily, more conformed, conformed. Not to the standards of this world, Paul says in Romans 12, but more to the image of Christ. So let's talk about this. Um, uh, one, more, one more verse before I get, get to there. The good news is, is at the coming of Christ, the image of God in us will be completely restored. Interesting statement that Grudem makes. Uh, Jesus is the perfect image of God. The Greek word icon is used in Colossians 1.16. He is the image of God. He is the icon of God. E-I-K-O-N is the Greek. I-K-O-N is, is the English. Transliterate that word right into English. Let me give you this verse here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.49. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust... Who is that? Who is the man of dust? It would be Adam... We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now, who is that? That's Christ. Amen. All right, what are, what are some specific aspects of, of man being in the image of God? Oh, man, i got to hurry. We're almost, it's already 7.30? Hmm. Okay. 7.30. All right, number one. Specific aspects of man being in the image of God. Number one is, is moral. We are morally accountable to God and have an innate sense of right and wrong. Okay? Justice, morality, holiness. The, these are characteristics of man. I mean, we, we have this sense, this innate sense of ethics, okay? Or oughtness. And if some of y'all say, my little puppy, old yeller, he knows what's right and wrong, yeah. But he don't know it like you know it. You know? I mean, we, we have this super intelligence, this super on steroid reality of what is right and what is wrong, though man tries to suppress it deep down in his heart, he knows. <laughs> My son was telling me about this dog up at the Austin Tennis Academy. And this dog, he's a sweet, friendly dog, and, and this guy kept missing his chickens. Can't find his chickens. Anymore. Where are all my chickens? And finally they came up one day, and that dog had, had a leg hanging out of his mouth. <laughs> he was just, <laughs> that dog was just looking at Feathers everywhere, and they were like, you rascal. He's eating, eating the chickens. I mean, no. But we, we, we know we shouldn't eat the chickens. We, we know. All right, number two, spiritual. We have physical bodies and an immaterial spirit as well. Check this out. We can relate to God, pray to God, praise God, listen to God as he speaks to us through his word. Isn't that cool? These are all spiritual dimensions of being created in the image of God. We will also live forever. We, are immor we have immortality of the soul. We will live forever. And you get that question a lot. I do as pastors from kids. What about my dog? You know, is my dog going to live forever? There's old Lassie and old Yeller. And... 
and the horse or whatever. Are they, they going to live? My, my first reaction is no, you know, no. And yet, I don't know what heaven's going to be like completely. I, I don't, I, what, Jesus, in the image of Scripture, says he's come riding on a, so, maybe, maybe so, maybe there I don't think Abby's in heaven, okay? That was my dog. I liked Abby. I mean, she's a sweet, sweet dog. But we are different, all right? We, we have the eternal soul. How about the mental? Y'all going to like this part. This is really fascinating. I thought Grudem did a tremendous job here about we can think and reason logically. We can think abstractly. We can engage in philosophy and ethics. He, Grudem says, chimpanzees will not sit around debating the Trinity or Calvinism. And I, I agree with that. They're just not. They are not. Um, German shepherds, as much as I like them, will never figure out a math or science equation, and they will never send another German shepherd to the moon. Also, mentally or intrinsically, we sense that we have a higher purpose and that we will live forever. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, don't you love this? He has put eternity in their hearts. You'll never read where God puts eternity in the heart of an animal or a plant, but he puts eternity in our hearts. We are more complex, higher emotionally uh, than the animal world as well. True, an animal can feel joy, sadness, jealousy. They can. Animals are smart. I'm going to give you all a story Sunday about a one smart animal. It is, it's a fascinating true story about this German shepherd. And somehow I'm going to tie it into my sermon. But come Sunday, my sermonette. Because General Wright's going to speak for about 25, 30 minutes. I'm so fired up about him being here. And, um, Corey, that was one cool thing y'all designed. The bulletin with the eagle and the Iwo Jima. Hannah said it took y'all two hours to pull that off. It looks so good. I'm excited about Sunday. Y'all doing anything Sunday? Why don't you come to church? It'd be a great, it'd be a great, I think I'll come. I think it'd be great. Okay, here it is. Here's, here's the statement I wanted y'all to catch. An animal could never feel the complex emotions, say, of a father who watches his daughter play a volleyball game and feel pride in the way she played while simultaneously feeling sadness that the team lost. Y'all catch that? That's complex. An animal could never do that. Can you see old Yeller going, oh, honey, oh, I feel so, I'm sorry. It, it just doesn't, he said, Brother Daniel, what, why are you making such a big deal of this? Because, guys, I promise you, there are people who make a big deal of this. They elevate animals and trees and aliens to the exact status of God's highest creation, which is uh, humanity. And I don't believe in aliens, by the way. Number four, relational. Uh, we can relate to God and to others. Humans can enjoy the complex and interpersonal relationships in marriage, uh, in church, in business, corporation, we're, we're relational uh, beings. Number five is physical. Um, God is a spirit. Is God is spirit, Jesus, Jesus said, and, and he does not have a physical body like we do. However, in the incarnation, Jesus came as a what? As a man. Not as a dog, not as a sheep, not as a lamb. Literally a lamb, he came as the lamb of God, the, the sin substitute. He came in the form of a human being. Uh, and the Bible uses anthropomorphic language to describe God 
using physical, our physical uh, attributes. For example, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Anthropomorphic means, anthropos, it means using language that we understand relates to our physicality, but ultimately doesn't relate to God because God is spirit, right? You can't say literally God's eyes if he is spirit. But you can say it anthropomorphically, and it's absolutely true because he does see. He does have vision. Okay. When Christ returns, we will have a new resurrected body, and we will have this body for all eternity. That's, that's, Grudem makes a big deal out of this whole physicality thing. And this Greek dualism of the physical is evil and the spiritual is good, uh, he, he, he demolishes that because he puts a lot of emphasis, a lot of stock in the fact that God has created us this way, and just as Jesus has a resurrected body, we will have a resurrected body. And we will spend eternity with him in heaven in a spatial place called heaven with resurrected human bodies. Okay? It is true that creation reflects the likeness of God that he created. I don't know if y'all saw it this morning. I was driving across uh, 183 and I, I about had church right in my car. I don't know if y'all saw it this morning. Oh my land. The sunrise... Was, it was just amazing. I just looked out over the horizon, and, and it was just, you know, you see God. Can I, can I say that? I mean, not, not literally. I'm, no, I'm not a pantheist. God is the sunrise, but God created that. And, and I see God in you. I, I see God in the way he created you and the way he created me and the, and the gifts and the personalities. It's just, just part of being how awesome he, he is. Um. Think about the starry universe, the colorful coral reefs, the majestic power of a lion in the jungle. All creative acts of God, but only man is said to be created uh, in his image. This grand theological truth should put within us a great sense of worth, for we are incredibly unique and highly valued, for we are more like him than anything else that he has or ever will create. Since this is true, it has another profound implication, and it ought to instruct us in how we treat one another. Can y'all see where I'm going with this? Okay, well, I'm going to show you where I'm going with this. There are no superior races if God has created us, and we're all equal in the eyes of God. Now, Marxism and communism and uh, Hitler and fascism would disagree with that. They say, no, there is a superior race, and the superior race ought to punish and kill the Jews, for example, the inferior race, because we are... No, 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 no. That's, you cannot find that in Scripture. Being created in the image and the likeness of God removes racism, removes the mistreatment of the elderly, the physically and the mentally handicapped, and the unborn. And the unborn. Because that's the way God... He's created us. We have this intrinsic value because we are, the, we are God's pinnacle highest creation from birth all the way Till, till death. Speaks a lot about ethics, doesn't it? Euthanasia. Speaks a lot about abortion and so forth. If we fail to remember this great doctrine or remove it completely, it will weaken and debilitate us greatly. We are created in His image, and what an incredible privilege and responsibility that is. I just got all excited about this. Herb, I just like this doctrine of man. It's just pretty... I almost walk away with this going, not in a proud way, but... Yeah, yeah, thank you, Lord. Now, 
I wish I was 6'6 six, six instead of 5'6, but that's okay. You know, I mean, that's okay. It's, it, he created me just like uh, he, he, uh, he, he wanted me to be. Have you ever thought about that? We have absolutely zero control over our genetic makeup. You know, some are tall, some are short. Some are athletic, some are not. Some are just super smart in science and math, some are not. And what if God created us all the same? How boring would that be? But man, we've got all this variety of gifts. And what's so beautiful is God pulls that all together in a family, and then he pulls that all together in a church family. And with all of our personality quirks and all of our eccentricities and idiosyncrasies, put it kindly, I want to say weirdness, you know, but can't say that, and all of our interestingness, God puts us together, we love each other, we get along, and we spend eternity with each other. It's just, it's just it's amazing. God is, he is awesome. I really want to get into man as male and female, but I'm not. I'm going to stop, and then we'll finish up this uh, lecture next week. Yes, we will. We are going to finish up uh, next week. Uh, man, it's cool, cool. Any, uh, any comments or questions? I've given you two minutes. I mean, surely uh, that's plenty of time, isn't it? On demons, Satan, angels, mankind, image of God, any, any comment, insight? Uh, I'll hang around for a few minutes if you want to talk to me. And then I'm going to uh, go eat, practice. Anything? Anybody? Okay, sounds, oh, sounds good. Oh, sick of bears. All right, good. Go, go bears. It's going to be a long day for me because i got to go up there and help them Baptists tonight. They, gonna, they might need it against the Sooners. They don't need it. But I'm looking forward to going. It's all black, so I've got all black on today. Where's your black, Kyle? You got it? Oh, it's in Waco. Okay, cool. It's going uh, to be fun. No, any Sooner fans in here? Oh, she's got a Burma Sooner t-shirt on. Oh, I didn't see that. That's cool. Ghost Boomer Sooners. <laughs> no, I'm pulling for the, for the Baptist tonight. Amen. So, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for each person that's in this room. Thank you, God, that they are awesomely wonderful. According to the Scriptures, you have created us in your image because, God, you are awesome, and what you make is wonderful. You make no mess, you make no mistakes. God, you created us the way you wanted us to be, and you created us with this great chasm and longing to know you, to be redeemed by you, and to be in fellowship with you. Lord, may we walk away today, be encouraged, uh, not just because of who we are and, and how special we are, but more than that, God, how awesome you are, and that, God, you have a plan. You, you have a plan for us, and, and that plan is the best. Thank you for Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Help us to walk in that plan. Help us to enjoy that pleasure. Help us to be a good, solid representative of Christ today in all that we do, all that we say. God, guide our thoughts. Guide our actions. Guide our words. Help us to be a radiant people of God shining brightly. Lord Jesus, throughout this city today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. See you next time. See you Sunday.